It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome, everyone, to the National Security Hour on America Out Loud News Network. And this is retired Colonel John Mills, Colonel R.E.T. John, Colonel R.E.T. John. And uh, uh, I have a great uh, guest I'm going to have on the show tonight. Uh, I had a chance to meet him and uh, just had some fascinating conversations uh, my guest tonight is Chris Street, and Chris is an expert on geoeconomics, international finance, and corporate comparative advantage. Mr. Street provides corporate consulting and lectures to international government and business associations. So this is just uh, really, uh, I'm really excited about this. And uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be here, John. All righty, Chris. Well, hey, in this first uh, segment, I wanted to go over with you is uh, we have a lot of chaos in the world right now. Uh, we have the uh, obviously the war in the Ukraine. We have uh, now this horrible attack by Hamas into Israel. Uh, we have rising tensions with China that uh, appear to be uh uh, essentially the the prelude to conflict uh we have somebody uh, in the white house who doesn't oftentimes realize they're in the white house uh we got a divided nation uh we got an interesting economy you know, some say it's the best ever i frankly have no idea what planet they're on um but but chris what in the world what is going on in the middle east what is going on in the world right now well, John, I believe this is the end of an economic boom that started in the 70s. And as you remember, in the in, in the 70s, if you said you have trouble in the Middle East and you had trouble against the Russians and you have trouble potentially against China, that would be a norm. That was a period of chaos, Vietnam, all that. And that trouble really announced in the 70s the end of one economic boom and it, it was washed away um, and cleared the decks. And of all places, California had a tax result revolt and Reagan rode that tax revolt into the presidency, cut uh, capital gains taxes from 70% to 28, had the biggest venture capital boom within 10 years, the Soviet Union had collapsed. You know, we actually started to address issues of the Middle East, you know, things started to quiet down the boom accelerated, the world benefited from it. And, and now that boom has sort of gone up its S-curve of growth, you know, hit its plateau, and we are now collapsing. The boom is over and the economic pain is back. Elites, and maybe some of us don't see it, but the, the stress and the economic pain out there is immense because the average individual is not benefiting from globalism. You know, if you take a look at, you know, trade with China, this year, the number of containers shipped from China to the U.S. has dropped by 33%. It shouldn't be any surprise 
that with the economics and stress, that's going to play out in politics and that's going to play out in international relations because we've now torn the scab off you know, Russia, the Middle East, and China again. And we're, in, you know, we're, we're seeing all this crisis. It's, it's all connected and it's all about failure. And John, I think the amazing part is we do this in America every 45 years. We go through a terrible time. We have a horrible president that fails. And then we actually get a clue, change our business model, change the structure, and then go off to the next boom. So I, I think the, the good news is there's a boom on the other side of it. The bad news is this is going to be viscerally awful. Uh, when uh, It's very interesting. Uh, Chris, when I was in college in the early 80s, uh, I remember the uh, professors in business, uh, uh, international affairs and economics would uh, geography would uh, say, you know, America, the future, all those jobs where people make things and get their hands dirty and turn wrenches, we're going to let that go to another, to the lowest cost of production area. And we're going to focus on higher value activities that are the future. And I always remember two they would give was we're going to focus on libraries, librarians, and, uh, uh, travel agents. Now, I don't know about you. I can't remember the last time I've used a travel agent. Um, and uh, libraries, uh, that's only where we uh, spend public money that you and I pay for to make sure uh, make sure the uh, homeless get access to adult content on the uh, on the uh, internet. I mean, it just it's just ludicrous because that's the two jobs they gave as an example just that's really not that's not the way the it's turned out so how does that those thoughts of globalism play into this well remember the growth in american universities is a real boom came from the veterans coming back from world war ii right mm -hmm. the universities grew you had over 50 percent of of the students at at major universities all universities mm -hmm. were veterans you went into the 70s and 80s you know people like myself that came back from vietnam you know, that was a great opportunity, went to great schools, got great education. But by the time you get to the current era, I've got a statistic in 2016 of the 160,000 undergraduate schools at the top 35 U.S. universities, only 675 were veterans. That's 0.04%. So, these universities have gone from elitist organizations in the 20 and 30s that you know were destroyed in the depression really they 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 invited you know the veterans and people who'd seen the world and done things and actually had hand skills and capability um and that you know, created an economic boom they're they've now weeded all that out and only the people you know who are qualified to be librarians, you know, or, 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 you know, the right type of person for, you know, the, the liberal, liberal managers of the universities, we, we've moved all these other people away. And I think, John, that's part of the crisis is that we have our priorities for the wrong era. And uh, it's now being obvious that it's a failure. 
Well, yeah, and I find this fascinating. We had some great technical programs, STEM programs in K through twelve, in that uh, in the university system, and you know, one I, I'm baffled by suddenly uh, the Biden administration uh, like nuclear power. They say nuclear power; it's green. That's the future. And I'm going. Hold on a second here. I remember when nuclear power was the enemy and evil. And so we're going to go to nuclear power, but we've shut down on these universities, all these nuke plants. And my my undergraduate at the University of Washington, you always had this mysterious building where it was this miniature nuke plant. Well, now they've ripped that out, uh, uh, defueled it, uh, disassembled it, and bulldozed it and concreted over. But we're going to go to nuclear power. I, I just... <laughs> Well, I, I think that the, the fact that you're laughing on it means that it doesn't exist. The good news is we'll now build it back. We'll build it in some of these massive plants. We'll build smaller plants. They'll be sophisticated. They'll use robots and things like that. You won't need a PhD. You won't need my education. You know, you need somebody that's gone to a technical school or a two-year college. And those people will be making $130,000 because they're doing something really valuable. You know, hand skills is what America doesn't have. You know, when you talk about tearing things down, you know, hauling them away, we've literally torn down all of our military tooling. And we've literally got rid of all of our tool and die makers and, and brought in electric engineers. You know, engineers who can't use their hands can't actually build things. They, they assume because they're going to build it in a computer-aided design, that it can be built to that, you know, to, to that uh, discipline. The problem is if you build everything absolutely perfect and you try in the real world to fit it together, it's not going to work. It doesn't have enough play. It isn't structured so that you can make it, you know, more productive. We just have an inability to 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 do things to make things by plan. You know, the old saying is, uh, people that do do. And people that can't do teach. And I happen to be somebody who lectures at all the universities. So there's an amazing number of kids out there, young ones right now, who are rejecting the old way. They're rejecting this elitist, you know, sort of internationalism. Um, and they're really the future. Un unfortunately, we're going to go through the turmoil we're in right now to, to blow that model up. But the other side of this, you know, is is a real competitive environment. Only America can change this fast. Yeah, that's a positive outlook, and I think it's I think it's true. Um, we, I, I think that's very important. We got some trend lines that we're dealing with here: uh, falling birth rate, falling birth rate now. The globalists, their response to that is just open borders and flood the country uh, uh, with illegal immigrants. And yes, I did say illegal immigrants, but uh, I mean, that's just, we, we, it is a phenomenon on wealthy countries. They, they're falling birth rate, but, uh, and they, but they lose, they f forget how to do things and they forget how to make things. Um, so how do we, how do we deal with these, uh, these forces that, uh, I mean, it seems like all wealthy countries seem to reach this apogee. So, but, but, uh, do you think we're different? We can break that cycle. Well, I, I think what, 
as much as you know, we, we have got a, a different birth rate number, it's falling, but vis-a-vis the world, remember the age you're gonna live to is growing. And whether, you know, whatever you want to say about them or not, the millennials are a big chunk of people in the world. The only countries demographically that are really going to be competitive in the future are gonna be of all places, Vietnam, France, New Zealand the United States. These are countries that have a large enough, you know, a base of young people to have children that our population will still continue to grow. You take a look at a place like China. <clears throat> China is estimated to have to fall from 1.4 billion people today to 800 million people by 2070. Except we forgot that there's 100 million girls that were killed after birth. So if you look at the numbers now, China will drop from 1.4 billion, actually 1.3 billion to 800 million by 2050. And in China, they eat bad food, smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. So literally the that is imploding in places like China. Um, so I, I think I mean, part of the struggle and and uh, is uh, and you've talked about the change uh, and transition in in in, uh, in the world. You know, the the reserve currency, the dollar is the reserve currency. Crypto, Bitcoin, gold. What do you? How do you think all this going to play out? Well, John, let me tell you how it got to be the reserve currency. At the end of World War II, America had sixty. 60- Three percent of the world's gold. That not six percent, sixty-three percent. And with communism taking a third of the world, we took half of that gold and put it in these institutions, the World Bank, the Bank of International Settlements, you know, these these ABC agencies to sort of as our way to, you know, uh, get people to play for our team. And at first it was a fantastic idea. You know, globalization came in. At first, we had the recovery from the war, which America, of course, never got bombed. And then we had globalism in this last cycle. But we're now finished. When you finish these cycles, some things become archaic. Being the world's reserve currency is a sucker's play because you don't get that much benefit, but you got to bail out everybody on your team when they fail and do stupid things. Is there any doubt that what's going on in Europe uh, is crazy? Is there any doubt that, that they've managed to lose 500 years of maritime dominance? But really, they've just sort of given it away. They're not competitive. They have a currency called the euro dollar that really is only backed by the United States, but it is not guaranteed by anybody. What, that That is the currency that I see as the greatest chance of collapsing. So you have this progression of time. America used this tool. It's now not valuable for us to be the world's policeman. And we're going to go to a different game. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, when you say different game, do you, you mean the dollar is the reserve currency or it doesn't matter what the reserve currency is? We're not going to be being the reserve reserve. We're not going to be the cushion for the entire world. I end, the transactional value of being the dollar is maybe three quarters of 1% profit 
because you do business in dollars, everybody else has to convert currency. But when you see the losses, you have to bail out all these countries, what you have to do to sort of keep them in on, on our team, it's not working for Americans. Maybe it's working for you know the major financial institutions. Maybe it's working for the reason we want to play with you, not just a reason that we need to have all the countries in the world on our side. That's the future. Wow. Wow. So what do you think about, uh, we got about, let's say about one, one, one minute here. What do you think about the UN? Do we, uh, do we need to start over? Do we need to uh, just shut it down and go without it? What do you think about that? It's a nice place to go, you know, to go to be able to, you know, eat well in New York and such like that. Um, it just, it's, it's irrelevant for its purpose. It didn't, it, it worked at one time. The idea was we're going to have these four policemen, you know, China, uh, Russia, um, uh, UK, and America. And then we added France because of Africa. So we have, you know, five members of the Security Council. But that's just a joke. I mean, that's that world of international communist competitors. That's over. The new world of economic competitors, of geoeconomic dominance, that's on the launch path. All right. Well, I always I always remember, and I've had to deal with the UN on a number of occasions and know what they really think of us. But uh, yeah, I always love that scene from uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's movie with their you know, the murder in the in the uh, the UN. Uh, beautiful. Yeah, that's back when the building in New York was would look great. Um, but uh, everyone, that's uh, that's this segment. Uh, this is Colonel Rhett John, Colonel R.E.T. John, on the National Security Hour with uh, my special guest, Chris Street. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome, everyone. This is Colonel Rhett John, Colonel R.E.T. John. This is the National Security Hour on the America Out Loud News Network. And I have my special uh, guest, uh, Chris Street, and we've been having a great talk. And in uh, this segment, uh, uh, the topic area is, is China rising or is China imploding? Is China rising or is China imploding? So, and Chris, and just for geographic orientation, I, I I'm on the on the East Coast. Chris is on, on the West Coast. Uh, uh, and uh, Chris, what do you what do you what do you think? What what's going on with China right now? 
Well, remember that China's boom was part of the globalism boom. It was a piece of the puzzle that, you know, created this incredible boom uh, before, you know, um, American companies were always trying to get illegal aliens, better known as wage breakers. You know, going back even in the, you know, 1860s and 1870s, they'd bring them in from Italy and then, you know, they'd, they'd learn English and start, you know, wanting wages. And so they'd go find somebody who didn't speak English in Czechoslovakia and bring them in. So that pattern of, of, of you know, trying to get America's cost down when we were the world's uh, manufacturing engine by 1900, we were 50 percent of world manufacturing. And, you know, that's what did us in. In, in the 30s, we just, you know, we, we ran out of customers. China was brought in from a very, very low base with a very, very young population. And, you know, they they lived that dream. They were that they were incredibly more competitive because of the costs. And you could make up for the transportation. And it caused, you know, world caused a major multinational corporate profitability to almost triple if you manufactured in China. And that was a great idea. And like every great idea, it had its day. And now it's reached the other side of the kind of curve, or what we call the S curve of growth, where you sort of peak out and then you start to fall off the other side. And I call China dead man walking. Now, I have a real interesting, you know, parasite, uh, periscope into China. I wrote a piece in uh, very well known in 2014 that said China will have the mother of all banking crisis. And what I basically outlined is China used, you know, the Western fractional banking where you can put for America, you put one dollar in the bank and you can loan it out 13 times. China took that concept and they you know, because they're a communist country and they can control people, you put $1 in the Chinese bank and you can lend it out 50 times. So uh, what we thought was an incredible, you know, manufacturing boom was actually even bigger as an incredible real estate and construction boom. Uh, Chinese have peaked in population. They're actually shrinking and they're going to shrink from about 1.3 billion right now to about 800 million people by 2050. Um, so China is in a revolutionary uh, change. They've lost their competitiveness. Um, you know, the the container traffic at the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles that handle 63% of the traffic are down 33 to 34%. You know, in China, you're seeing, you know, Xi Jinping not want to leave the country to go to the BRICS or go to the G20. And, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, he's, you know, uh, crushed five uh, generals and the People's Liberation Army. So I think China is in revolutionary chaos. You, you just don't see it from the patina on the outside. But China had to spend $75 billion, billion U.S. dollars to stabilize their currency. And even with that kind of uh, expense last month, they still had their stock market down about 12%. So China's going all in for stability, but John, you know, that's over. Yeah. What do you think about the likelihood of conflict? And my, my position is we're actually already in conflict that fentanyl is, uh, is war. We're losing 10,000 Americans a month, but let's say bombs and missiles war. What do you think is the likelihood of, 
China being able to s- survive long enough to move on Taiwan, move further, and get uh, w- open warfare with us. What do you think the future holds for that? Well, I, I think it's almost the present. I think that this is coming very, very fast. And, you know, they have what's called Christmas in July here in the U.S. for, you know, for uh, purchasing agents. And China purchasing in uh, purchasing in China for the electronics industry, you know, for high tech was down almost 40 percent this last cycle. We'll see those deliveries in the second quarter of next year. I mean, this is really going to be disruptive. And oh, by the way, has anybody talked here yet about the El Nino uh, uh, Motokai that is coming that could give China uh the uh, largest floods in 100 to 200 years. This is what's always happened in the end of every dynasty in China. Um, things sort of collapse internally, and, and then they get bad luck with it collapsing you know, externally. So if you have this kind of chaos coming, and you're a communist, and remember in China, when the end of the dynasty, they, you know, they chop off 100 million heads, all the way down to your seed, all of your babies, everybody who's a relative of you, you're going to do everything to survive. So I believe there's probably, you know, 60 to 70 percent chance that in the second half of 2024, almost on top of us, China will make a play for Taiwan. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it matters if it's going to work militarily. It's going to be a rallying point for a nation in crisis. Wow. What do you, we don't know how many nuclear weapons they have. Uh, Department of Defense just came out with a report said 500 nuclear warheads. I think that's a low count. I mean, if you just do the math on the number of their ballistic missile submarines, the number of their long range, intercontinental ballistic missiles, short range, which we don't have any, and medium range, we don't have any. The ma- I think 500 and, and bombers. I don't think, uh, I think it's, it's uh, so now you got a, a, somebody with nuclear weapons. We don't know how many. Right. So what do you think? Do you think, what do you think about internally? Uh, what power groups do you think would possibly, because this is going to be bad. It's going to be bloody. And I, I just, I don't see the entire Chinese population being on board with this. Um, China is a really, really funny place. You know, back here, at, you know, a decade ago, people thought it was a boom, but there was a thousand riots in China every day. <laughs> you know, the people in China, they, you know, when, when they had COVID, remember, they, you know, welded those apartment buildings so mm-hmm. you couldn't get out. Mm-hmm. Um, China is really, everybody has rules and they have Chinese rules, right? And then you pay the bribe and there's no rules. And you can do whatever you want. It sort of works in China when, you know, when when the when the energy starts flowing, crazy things can happen. It can scale pretty quickly. Um, so I I don't think the control of the Communist Party is that strong, but I think they can use that sort of Chinese character, uh, you know, in in a military adventure. I, I think there's and you're more of a military expert than I am. I'm. I'm the guy who wants to land on the beaches and figure out how to take over the country. Um, but I only see seven places in Taiwan that you can land expeditionary forces. 
I see an eight-hour cruise across the straits. Um, I, I don't think that's about nukes. I think that's about geography. So I don't think if they win or lose that China loses. I think if if they don't make the play, then they've got to hope that economically they can survive. And that doesn't, if, if you were a gambling man and you were sitting there doing the odds right now, you would come to the conclusion that China is going to have an existential financial crash. And these, the, the way these people are, they're going to go for the Communist Party that caused it. Wow. Evergrande, their biggest real estate right. uh, investor. I, I guess they, I mean, it's been for like a year or more, there's been, con, you know, that it was going bankrupt. I guess it has gone bankrupt. How is right. that? They finally, they, they finally put a bullet in the carcass. No, it's like what? shooting the dead. <laughs> and uh, John, what happened? Let me tell you how this game was played. Go ahead. Because you have the central government and it has power, but then you have these 57 provinces. And historically, they've been the real power. Remember that China was usually about seven warlords. And every once in a while, somebody get real control. <clears throat> but then it would atomize at some point again. But if, if you look at um, you look at these provinces, the provinces are pretty independent. And what the provinces did, they they don't pay people very much. Um, and, and they uh, and so the way the provinces do to sort of pay the bureaucracy is they would take peasants land. They would get a phony baloney you know, development company that would buy that would um, uh uh, that would want to develop this land, the government would, the province would buy the land for nothing, you know, give these peasants something which was more than they had, given an apartment, and then they would take this piece of peasant land, they would then take it over to the state-owned bank, and the bank would say, well, that really isn't worth, you know, $10 million that you paid for it, that's worth $150 million. And they would give the government $150 million dollars, and then they would build the apartments. They actually built the apartments. And, you know, you had this investor group that then would invest in the apartments, but they didn't invest in owning the apartments. They invest in the right to lease the apartments for 70 years. Now, I know that doesn't sound very logical, but that's the system. It is the greatest Jenga block set up in history. I don't even know. Is it Jenga a Chinese game or not? Jenga is little You have these, you build this tower in blocks and you pull out one block at a time. It, it's remember the, the game when you used to pull out the stick and then yeah, the yeah. whole thing would fall down. Jenga blocks is a, it, some of your, I'm sure some of your listeners that have kids know all about this, but you keep pulling out blocks and it's amazing how the, the tower doesn't fall. And then finally you pull out the wrong one and it all comes crashing down. So you know, that's, that's China's real estate market. Wow. So what about food? Uh, they, uh, they... <laughs> well, what about El Nino? That's probably going to be the, you know, the, the expectation is this coming El Nino is going to be the 100 to 200 year flood. Now, China is the most sophisticated country in the world in dealing with water because it kills them. <laughs> so historically, they, they were the 
greatest irrigators, the greatest dam builders, all of that. But they're facing, you know, one of those cycles. This is the what's called the, the 100 year. It's actually 89 years, but people call it the 100 year. They're facing a spectacular El Nino this year that in India, you're sucking out all of the moisture towards China. So India is going to be in massive drought and they've already cut off rice ex, uh, exports. India is the largest rice exporter in the world. You know, China, which, you know, can't feed itself anyway, but makes a lot, grows a lot of corn and grows a lot of wheat by putting just tons of fertilizer on. They're going to lose their entire harvest. So you're right, John. They are facing not only not, not only financial crisis, not only a military political crisis, they're going to be facing, probably facing a food crisis. And oh, by the way, world stocks in grains are at a 35-year low. Mm. You mean stocks as in levels that are stored? Storage. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what was the estimate? I mean, they lost a lot of people during the uh, the great leap forward in the 60s. Well, they lost, they, they really, they say it was, you know, 25 to 30 million. It was closer to 57 million. And, you know, they, it, it's kind of like Stalin when he does a great leap forward. You know, he, he, he starved the Ukrainians. He took the Ukrainian grain and, you know, sold it to, to, to buy, <laughs> to buy, to buy expertise to build steel factories. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I don't think China can take that kind of punch in the face, the government. Um, you know, they're, they're not like they were in the 50s, you know, when after 100 years of shame, they were busting out of it um, a- after winning, you know, World War Two against the Russians and, you know, and, and surviving the Japanese. Um, uh, you know, you had this communist, you know, revolution and, and, you know, the great leap forward sounded absolutely great, you know, for, for university type people, um, except during that leap, you sort of leaped over the, you know, the starving people uh, that lived in the, the the rest of the country. But the folks now are used to eating three meals a day, and it you know it's it's wonderful to go from two bowls of rice to three, but it's crucifying to go from three bowls of rice to two. So you know wow. you're gonna you're gonna get down to that you know right down to where you know the the rubber meets the road uh, in risk in this environment. Well, and doesn't, uh, isn't uh, their, one of their primary sources of uh, protein is pork. And where do they get a lot of that pork from? Well, they try to buy, I mean, they, they, they buy pork from, you know, the, from the world, but you know, they grow a lot of pork. I mean, if you go to a Chinese peasant house out in the countryside, the pigs live in the house. I don't know if you knew that. You know, they're sort of in that. They're sort of been, you know, where they, where they're they they sort of live with the pigs. Pigs mm-hmm. are very valuable. You got to make sure you, you know, you take care of them. Um, but that's not the staple. The staple is is rice, wheat, and corn. Just okay. you know, more rice than you know other countries, but that is the staple, and that is what they need. The volume you can't buy enough pork on world markets to make up, you know, for you know the the lack of rice, corn, and wheat. And oh, by the way, 
when you have a lack of uh, of corn and a lack of wheat, you're going to have high prices, which are coming on now, and you're gonna you're not going to be able to afford that pork. You're going to slaughter your herds mm-hmm. early. I mean, that's if you go down to the local butcher. I mean, I'm here in California. You can get you know pork chops, really good looking pork chops, for two thirty nine a pound. You can get mm-hmm. pork tenderloin for two eighty nine a pound. I mean, that was you know double that price last year. Um, but, but even in California, you know, even in the Midwest, they are liquidating these herds because the cost of grain to feed them is going up to the point they don't believe they'll be able to sell it at a profit. I, mm-hmm. I know this is a dire picture that I'm painting, but if you stood back in the you know the long sweep of history. This is just the normal smack that comes along. I'm just saying all of this economic trouble leverages all of the normal, you know, trouble associated, you know, with with climate change, drought and and, and monsoon rains, um, you know, uh, cat disease. All of that seems to be part of the same that sort of roll of the dice. And as you know, in the 70s, you had great turmoil. You had, you know, terrible uh, e- economic um, harvest. You know, people are talking, remember global warming was going to starve the world. Mm-hmm. We were in a global cooling cycle right, and they right. thought this was going to be permanent. We've peaked in the heat cycle and we're on the other side uh, that goes down in the cooling cycle. And, and these cycles, actually, it peaked seven years ago. John, what if I told you the atmosphere of the world is shrinking? It is smashing down uh, because you're, you're not having a lot of sunspots. So when that happens, you tend to have cooling. And cooling is uh, very detrimental to food supply. Mm. Well, all right. Well, Peter, well, thank you very much. That was that was absolutely fascinating on uh, where uh, China is headed. It doesn't sound good, but uh, uh, hopefully we can get through this without too much of a major conflict. But uh, thank you, everyone. This is uh, Colonel Rhett John, Colonel R.E.T. John on the National Security Hour with my special guest, Chris Street. Thank you very much. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all.
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Welcome, everybody. This is Colonel Rhett John, Colonel R.E.T. John of the National Security Hour on the America Out Loud News Network with my special guest, Chris Street. So, uh, Chris, thank you. This is we've had some fascinating segments here. And part of uh, when we first got to get to know each other, we had this great talk, and I thought it was I thought it was kind of a good way to a final segment here. So, what does a new America look like, and what are the opportunities? Even though the world seems to be in chaos, China seems to be in chaos, which may have, which will affect us. But uh, what what does a new America look like, and what what opportunities are there in in this new? revitalized america well well john as i've said i believe america goes crazy every 45 years washes away the 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 failed business model uh and then re uh reassigns and re you know calculates itself and launches a new economic boom that leads the world and i believe this has been going on since you know, uh, 1848, when uh, America had six financial crises, was the worst credit in the world. Uh, and the Bank of England, with 80 tons of gold in the, its vaults, ran the British Empire, ran the world. And in the first year of the California gold rush, they discovered 80 tons of gold in California and sold it to the Treasury. Over the next nine years, they t- sold a, ho- a total of 750 tons of gold. So the U.S. went from the worst credit in the world to the greatest credit in the world. By 1900, we were 50% of all of the manufacturing in the world. You know, we went through World War I. We defeated everybody on our, you know, our our industrial base. We hit the 30s. We ran out of customers. Um, You know, things were a disaster. You had a depression. You re-scrambled everything. You know, uh, along came World War II. We used our expertise and our capability and our manufacturing base, you know, to to not only win World War II, to be the only winner of World War II. And that drove us into the 70s where, you know, the, w- what had made us fantastic, you know, the, the, the government sort of managed economy and, and the great uh, economic progress you know, coming out of the 30s and World War II, that collapsed. You know, our, our auto industry came down. And then we sort of reshuffled the deck. We came came around to the idea that that's gone. Uh, had a tax rebellion that started in all places, California with Prop 13, and Reagan took it on. And all of a sudden, you he, he cut, you know, uh, capital gains rate from 78% to 28%. And America, 10 years later, had defeated, you know, the Soviet Union uh, and we, you know, turned China into a partner. And now we are sort of playing out 
that boom. And we're hitting the same wall we hit in the 70s, in the 30s, you know, in the 1890s. Uh, you know, this is the normal course of it. And we're in the crash right now, but the crash is allowing us to retool, to refunction, and get ready for the future. I mean, one of the benefits of America is that we don't have a rusted industrial base this time. We really don't have <laughs> We've outsourced all those factories. So when you build the new factories of the world, you're going to build them next to the customer. And the customer, obviously, is still the United States. I mean, we're 25, 30% of, of, of all consumption. Secondly, you're going to make these smaller, more sophisticated, robot-enabled factories. Um, and you're not going to need a PhD uh, a math guy like me. Uh, I don't have a PhD, but I have all, I, I'm competitive with those guys. But you, you're, you need you know, junior college uh, graduates, you know, trade schools. Um, you, know, you, you need to build all that, uh, and you will. Uh, I have a program that I, I, I wrote and, and tried to get it going in 2013, and everybody said, great idea, wrong time, called Hands Across America, that will train you know, 10 to 20,000 die and tool and die makers to make the machines of the future. Um, these people are going to make $130,000, and they need a high school education. So, John, I, I'm very optimistic, but I'm realistic that yeah, we're we're just in the beginning of this cauldron. This is going to go through, probably through twenty six, and, and then people will just be amazed that uh, things will reorganize itself, and it's going to be the United States because we're quicker, faster, smarter. We're just kind of nuts here. We just kind of willing to do things. We're willing to walk away from our past and create the future. Um, so I, it's it's going to be America. And, you know, our kids, you know, our, our grandkids are going to have the greatest boom in history, not because they're special, but because America is special. Yeah, that's that's great. That's a great way to put it. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited about the future. I, I think it's I think we need to get back to being a productive society. When, when you talk about tool makers, I mean, that's, that's a special place in my heart. My dad, when he left the Air Force in 1952, uh, he was he, we decided to get out of the Air Force uh, at Fairchild Air Force Base, Washington. And this recruiter from this company called Boeing was in town because... I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, Boeing was... <laughs> Boeing was gearing up for this this big big win called the B52. Right. And they needed machinists. They needed uh, tool makers. And my dad Not machinist uh, senior tool makers. Senior tool makers. Yeah, that's what they needed. And my dad went from being an administrative clerk in the Strategic Air Command to being a uh, a tool maker and uh, I still have some of his tools downstairs, and I still have some of uh, I have several blocks of steel, small blocks of steel. Hopefully, uh, the statute of limitations is passed on any crimes. But he cut these very, 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 very precisely, and this was all before computer aided this, computer aided right. that, and and these were perfect one inch and 
one inch by two inch uh, squares and rectangles. And uh, yeah, but uh, I, so that is a special place in my, my heart. Um, What do you, and and how do, I mean, California and you're in California, I mean, went from being the industrial, you know, just really the engine of the American economy in so many ways between Detroit and California. What what do you see going on in California uh, as part of uh, this these trend lines? Well, I know people are going to get mad at me because I'm going to say something about the brains of California. Now, remember that when we uh, struck gold in California, you, the the smartest people in the world wanted gold, right? And so they brought their technology to mine it. They 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 brought uh, you know their their uh, they were going to build houses for these people that work on this this new economy. Uh, and then when that sort of played out in the you know eighteen about eighteen eighties and the real estate crash in the eighteen nineties, it was a pl- have you ever heard of a place called Beverly Hills? <laughs> Three dudes uh, in in the middle of a depression in the eighteen nineties slant mined with pick and shovels down to the largest pool of oil in the world pick and shovels guy named doheny (laughs) and that made all of a sudden that made every navy in the world a paperweight because coal was uh you could go only half as far and half as fast as coal as you could with fuel um the brains that that sucked in to the you know the great naval boom through World War One. Remember, forty three percent of the ships for World War Two were built in California, and sixty two percent of the planes. So it, it was California's brains. We came out of that. You know, we we sort of the world changed on us. And in the seventies, it looked like you know the same kind of doom we're in right now. And, and then all of a sudden. You know, the, the tax cuts came, the new policy came, we wiped away the old world, and you launched because of, you, you launched this venture capital boom that funded r- really the building of, 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 of the world uh, on the uh, uh, semiconductor microchip. Um, and, you know, we, we've played that out, that game's over. You know, there's a lot of people in that business still, but that brain power is still in California. I, I know it. It doesn't look like it's very productive right now. I know we don't make any airplanes or cars, um, but we make pretty much we're making all of the rockets already. So if you go down in the industry of the future, imagine this, that SpaceX has launched 77 rockets this year. It's an average of one every uh, 3.8 days. Um, and they put uh, about 5,600 of these mini communication satellites uh, up in the sky in low orbit. And you now have, you know, you, you've, you've done away with cable, you've done away with wireless by having satellite communication that pretty darn soon it is going to be more competitive than, you know, your, the uh, AT&T cell phone account you have. So I'm really optimistic about, you know, America's ability you know, to redirect itself. I mean, these booms tend to start in California, but they also tend to end in California. You know, they start, they spread out to, to the United States, they spread out to the world, but they also, you know, go down hard in California. 
California doesn't have an audited financial statement for its government. Mm-hmm. It, its taxes last year were $169 billion in revenue, and they spent $245 billion. I would mm-hmm. call that a disaster. Yeah, mo- most companies would call that going out of business. <laughs> um, the uh, I had an uncle lived in Davis, California, a wonderful uncle and aunt, and uh, they uh, uh, he had worked at uh, PG and E once, the model utility for the world. Uh, never forget he he got a new Ford LTD, ordered it, mail ordered it. This is back this is before the internet. They spec'd it out exactly, and then went down to the Ford plant. I think it was in Oakland or below Oakland. Yeah, they had several. And uh, and picked it up. I mean, he had it specced out exactly the way he wanted it and went down and picked it up right off the factory. Uh, so those were, those were heady days for California. I hope we're headed back that direction. And one of my, uh, even though I'm an, uh, a, a retired Army guy, um, I really, especially with the world affairs militarily and also economically as I think you don't have a nation if you don't have borders you don't have a nation unless you build things that build things and you don't have a nation unless you have a dominant merchant fleet and we've we've been able to skate out of this depending on other merchant fleets we don't have a merchant fleet we got 60 around 60 Jones Act ships but it's shipbuilding the, the role of shipbuilding and like you said California used to dominate and uh, uh, Del Toro, now this is military ships, but I think we should uh, right. civilian vessels too, but he was just uh, in the Bay Area and the excitement is growing that they're going to reopen or establish a new shipyard, maybe right in the Bay Area. Well, I, I, that's that's the kind, but it won't be the shipyard, you know, your great grandfather knew, right? It, it'll be a more sophisticated, we've talked about this, you know, th- this will be a housed, you know, uh, shipbuilding area. It'll be really sort of like a factory around the ship. You know, Kaiser in, invented modern shipbuilding that you you make them in, in sections and then you sort of bolt it together. I mean, remember, you're going to be able to print a lot of this stuff on computers, uh, the products, and you're going to be able to make things at incredible scale, incredibly fast. And, you know, that's that's going to be the strength in that if you're a ship yard in, you know, uh, South Korea or China or Japan, you're the old uh, fella. You know, you've got the old way of doing things. You can't afford to tear down your shipyard and rebuild it from scratch. It's easier to go to a place that they already told it, tore it down. You know, it's the, the property's just, you know, has no value. It's sitting there, even if it's, you know, even if it's in Oakland. And you can make these incredible new products. So um, I I am all for America being the exporter to the world. You know, we we can't live if we're just importing. We can't live if we're just you know trying to cut our own you know people's wages by bringing in um, illegal aliens because they're really w- wage breakers. And I have the greatest amount of respect. For the working man, no matter where they are in the world, I've managed factories, you know, in about 12 different countries. So I, I understand people are people, but it is really mean uh, political attitude to bring in illegal uh, labor and use it to break 
Americans' wages. You know, maybe they'll be kind to them and, you know, give them some homeless money. You know, give, give the poor guy that lost his career in life. You know, we'll, 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 we'll give him some, some welfare, right? That is just mean and nasty. And, you know, that a job is the best uh, social program ever invented. Yeah, yeah, and I it, it, illegal workforces uh, and the wage game. Um, and you you run uh, factories. I haven't run factories, but it's just an economic truism that they there's an in the the more you bring in cheap labor, the less you innovate, and it's it's a deterrent to innovation. So these companies, right. in pursuit of the quarterly return drive their company out of business because in the end you got to innovate and and w if if the goal is to bring in low wages that is that deters innovation we always want innovation well i'll so, tell you john how it works in china in china they work very very hard for you during the daytime and every night they're out interviewing for somebody else they will leave you literally for 25 cents an hour and so you're never sure what your workforce is going to be there. You know, India is just the opposite. You know, they 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 um, they they love the company. They respect you. They they you know they just don't want to tell you any bad news. Well, there's a problem if they don't tell you bad news in China. They'll tell you all the bad news. They don't have trouble talking to you. Um, so everybody has their sort of advantage. But in the new world, the advantage is not going to be cheap labor. It's going to be smart labor with extremely smart tools. That's more powerful than just, you know, cutting the cost and having a temporary employee who's never really bonded to the company, who's never really there to try to help you succeed. I mean, that's the future is, you know, teaming uh, relationships. As I said, these tool and die people, you can't afford to lose them. You got to get them. And you got to take care of them and you got to you know, challenge them, give them interesting work environment. That's the future. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Chris. It's been uh, an absolute honor. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. And this is uh, Colonel Rhett John, Colonel R.A.T. John, the National Security Hour. And this was my, was on with my wonderful special guest chris street thank you so much chris and this is colonel rat john the national security hour on america out loud news network